This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all enjoying the last few days of beautiful fall weather. We've already had our first freeze up here in northern New England. In fact, I saw a few snowflakes a few days ago, so winter is on its way. My yard right now is covered in a big blanket of leaves. I'm leaving the leaves in my yard to feed my native trees and replenish the soil. With each year that I leave the leaves on the ground, I am seeing more and more butterflies in my yard. Some species of butterfly overwinter in curled up leaves. Now is the perfect time to spot non-native and invasive shrubs and plants in your yard. Most deciduous natives have dropped all of their leaves. What really stands out at this time of the year is Japanese knotweed, Japanese barberry, burning bush, and Asiatic bittersweet. Swapping them out for natives will benefit the birds and all of the wildlife in your yard. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking about the much-despised sumac and just how beneficial this native shrub really is. And now for some encouraging news. Scientists are reporting a notable increase in the number of migrating monarch butterflies along the west coast of the United States. Scientists are reporting increased numbers of monarchs at known overwintering sites along the California coastline, reporting hundreds at some sites and thousands at others. This news comes on the heels of the disheartening migration of last year, which numbered less than 2,000, an all-time historic low. Last year's dismal totals represents a 99.9% decline from the millions of monarchs that have overwintered in California until recent decades. More accurate numbers will be tallied later this month when over 100 community scientists participate in the Western Monarch Thanksgiving count. Researchers are hopeful this upswing in numbers will help stabilize the population. In the meantime, there is new legislation in Congress, including the Monarch and Pollinator Highway Act and the Monarch Act. Both of these pieces of legislation seek to prevent further encroachment and fragmentation of sensitive monarch habitat. A new study is showing that birds love to eat fungus. Researchers with the University of Florida studied ground-dwelling birds in Patagonia and discovered truffle DNA in the birds' droppings. While it has long been known that mammals have a fondness for truffles, which technically are mushrooms that grow underground, Researchers are excited by the discovery that birds may also be digging in the ground for fungus and contributing to its spread across the landscape. The spread of truffles, of which there are hundreds of varieties, is crucial to the health of forest ecosystems, said the scientists conducting the study. As mycorrhizal fungi like the truffle help native trees take up vital nutrients from the ground. Dr. Marco Caiefa 
one of the authors of the research, said this is the first study to document birds eating and dispersing viable truffle spores in the wild, and that some species of truffle may have evolved into bright colors to attract birds. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now let's talk about the misunderstood sumac. Sumac. Say the word and immediately one conjures up images of construction sites, highway exits, or abandoned gravel pits filled with tall, spindly plants. The sumac, often referred to as the weed tree, is actually an extremely beneficial native plant and certainly not deserving of the poor reputation it has lived with for the last 70 years. This bad rap is thanks mostly in part to the $60 billion a year horticultural industry with its emphasis on marketing non-native invasives to customers. It is also due to many commercial landscapers who routinely refer to the sumac as an opportunistic junk tree. We'll be talking about staghorn sumac today. Staghorn sumac is widespread in New England, and chances are good you already have this beneficial plant on your property. The seeds of the sumac may be sitting in the ground, waiting for a chance to pop out, especially if they are located in a lawn area that is constantly mowed. The sumac is the ideal plant for those who practice successional gardening. With the natural process of succession, you merely stop mowing and watch what your former lawn starts producing. The soil is a veritable seed bank, just waiting to sprout, and it won't take long before you'll see woody shrubs and tree seedlings start to appear. Amazingly, seeds in the ground can sit dormant for decades before they sprout. With this type of passive gardening, you remove the non-natives and allow the natives to flourish, along with a little selective pruning. Sumac is the ideal successional plant, and you can devote a corner of your yard in order to grow a grove of sumacs. This will make your yard a very popular stopover for birds. The deciduous staghorn has many beneficial characteristics, not the least of which is being extremely drought tolerant. They do quite well in dry and poor soils. They are fond of direct sun, which is why they tend to multiply along the fringes of disturbed woodland sites. The staghorn produces small green and yellow flowers in 8-inch upright clusters. These flowers bloom in June and July and attract a great variety of pollinators with their nectar and pollen, including bumblebees, wasps, and flies. Growing up to 30 to 40 feet in height, their bright red fruit matures in the late summer and can last all winter, feeding a multitude of songbirds like bluebirds, red-eyed vireos, robins, cardinals, thrushes, chickadees, and pileated woodpeckers. The fruit and seeds also feed ruffed grouse, bobwhite, quail, and ring-necked pheasants. The bark is eaten by squirrels, fox, and rabbits. The sumac also serves as the larval host for several butterflies, including the red-banded hair streak. It's important to take note that staghorn is not closely related to poison sumac. However, Poison sumac is yet another reason native sumacs have gained a bad reputation. Poison sumac is not common and bears grayish-white and not red fruit clusters. 
Poison sumac prefers only wet, swampy areas, so you will not find it growing in your typical backyard. In addition, it usually only grows 8 to 10 feet and sports red stems. There is nothing poisonous about staghorn sumac, and you can enjoy it in your yard. Allow a grove of staghorn to grow into small trees, and you will be rewarded with a display of brilliant red leaves come the fall. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. The Florida Keys are a very popular place. It's on many people's bucket lists, and it's also on a lot of people's wish lists for a retirement location. But the Keys are really just a long, narrow, and quite frankly, very crowded archipelago of sand sitting on top of limestone, the remnants of ancient coral reefs and sandbars. Thanks to rampant development, many condos and homes already sit cheek to jowl, and that development has had an impact on the wildlife, especially the birds. One day, we received a call to come out to a local shopping center. A supermarket was in the process of having construction repairs conducted on its roof, and they needed our help. When we arrived, the workers presented us with two plastic five-gallon buckets full of eggs and tiny newly hatched chicks. They were least terns. The least tern is the smallest and lightest of the species of terns. They measure a mere nine inches long and weigh less than two ounces. 60% of Florida's least terns make their home in the Florida Keys. The least tern population has seen a reduction of 90% since the 1960s, in part due to rises in sea level and erosion, but mostly due to habitat destruction, namely sandy beach areas where they nest and raise their young, the exact same areas that hotels are vying with one another for in order to build their real estate. They might be getting pushed off the beaches, but these birds are smart. In the last several decades, the least terns have started nesting on the gravel rooftops of strip malls, yacht clubs, gas stations, and hotels. Not only does their elevated beach and nesting area not get flooded, it is much less likely to be disturbed by humans. The two big disadvantages? The chicks can sometimes step off the roof and fall to the ground, becoming injured. The other, of course, is repairmen. These have to go, said the contractor. When we hesitated, he said, don't worry, we'll make a donation. I could see my mentor's face turning red. She was stealing herself for a confrontation. I had counted 47 eggs and 20 chicks. It was an entire colony. These birds are a threatened species and are going right back up there, my mentor said carrying the buckets over to the ladder, leaning against the building. They are federally protected, and disturbing their nest is against the law. I don't think I had ever seen her so angry. She explained to the contractor that the eggs and babies would only survive if they were returned to the roof immediately, and she would have to report them to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission if they interfered. The contractor started to backpedal immediately. Come on, lady, he said. Have a heart. I had orders from my boss to remove them. 
We had no idea it was illegal. She ignored him and we both climbed up there. The least turned parents were not amused and started dive-bombing us, regurgitating half-digested fish over our heads and defecating in an attempt to drive us away. We rearranged the eggs and chicks in their nest and then scooted off the roof as quickly as we could. We would check on them twice a day for several weeks. Most of them survived. So many least terns have been kicked off beaches that rooftops now comprise 80% of their nesting colonies in Florida. And while it's great to see that least terns can adapt to rooftops, long flat gravel roofs are becoming obsolete as building codes and building styles change. As with so many other bird species driven from their habitat on the Keys, it's a case of cross your fingers, push wildlife agencies for stronger enforcement, and hope for the best. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.